So we will be in the book of Ruth for six weeks now. Uh, it is a, a fantastic book. I was telling the board here that I've got to ease off this. This is uh, one of the books I've, I've studied probably more than many, which is kind of seems kind of odd. It was uh, part of seminary, but I just have an incredible fascination with a love for this book. It is so rich. It's short. It's rich. It's wonderful. We love it so much. There are several reasons. One of the big ones is uh, uh, that we named our, our, our second daughter, Eliana. Her middle name's Ruth. Like, we really like Ruth. We like this thing. And so I am going to try not to get super excited about this, uh, but I can't make any promises. One of those ways in which I tried to be not excited, but then it ended up becoming something is those booklets there for you are kind of a guide to, uh, to get into the book of Ruth. I think you have, uh, we put a couple around on the seats. If you don't have one, uh, either grab one from that's not being used or punch somebody and take theirs. Um, we'll have a time of reconciliation later, but now you need the book. Um, the, uh, so you, you get kind of the basic outline there. You get a map. Uh, that'll be helpful for today. Uh, and just kind of knowing the region, kind of what the meanings are there. Um, on, on the second page, I think it is, of the text, it gives a little outline of what we're doing. Uh, and we're really, you'll see, you'll notice the strange word there, said. It's the steadfast, loyal love of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and that's where we're going to sit. We're going to really look at this idea of the loyal love of God and see how God's loyal love is, is displayed throughout, uh, throughout creation, throughout his people, and to his people. It's a subtle theme that is, is, is only touched on a couple times directly, but it is powerfully the thing moving, uh, moving us through the book of Ruth. So that's where we'll be. That's kind of an outline of, of the series. The rest of it, I did not write. It's just a copy-paste from the Bible because I think the best material I could give you is actually the Bible. So that is for those of you who don't like writing in your Bible, uh, write in it, chalk it up, read. Uh, there, there are patterns. This is a piece of literature. And to, to get some of the poetry that's in here, to get some of the themes that are in here, you need to find things. Like uh, you need to see how many times Naomi is going to say, go back, return my daughters. That's a big deal. Mark that stuff up, make connections, write the definition of the people's names as a beautiful piece of literature. The, the, the names mean so much, like every single name in this story means something huge and helps us understand God. So that's there for you to read often, many times. Uh, maybe even read what that theme is. The, today is loyal love. So this week, read the book of Ruth several times, thinking of where is this loyalty in the book of Ruth. The next week, I think, is enduring love. How does love endure? Uh, and so that's a suggestion, but I really want to be in the book, devour the book, write it up. You don't have to feel bad if you make some, uh, some markings on it. So get in it, devour it, sit in it, be in it, and let it soak into your heart. All right. Now we'll get to the fun. Uh, in my opinion, uh, one, of the best, uh, one of the best examples of loyalty in Western literature and then movie Adam uh, is the, uh, the hero, uh, not the hero, the sidekick is who it is uh, in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. It's Samwise Gamgee. This guy is, to me, when I think of loyalty, I literally see this face. This guy is so incredible. If you've ever read The Hobbit, if you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, or if you just watched the movies, that's cool too. You get that. This is a picture from the movie. Um, this guy is so loyal. It's, it's, it's mind, uh, mind-boggling just how, how incredible this guy is. Uh, one of the things that we see, uh, you don't have to see the books to get this, but one of the things we see is there's this journey. His friend has been given a task to take this ring and go take it to Mount Mordor and destroy it. 
Uh, it's kind of an analogy for sin and temptation and the journey of life. I mean, Tolkien's meaning to do this. And then how we need people like Sam to come alongside of us, push us along, encourage us, carry us when we need carried. It's this guy struggling with his, his life of sin and trying to get rid of this. And, and Sam comes along, and he is that loyal friend, much like Ruth. And he's saying, we got to do this. We are gonna, we're going to be there. At one point in this, in this, uh, in this journey through Middle-earth, and it's, I mean, for hobbits, they're super tiny. That's what he is. And it takes even longer to get across this massive map. Uh, it takes a long time. At one point, they're incredibly discouraged. Uh, they, they just want to give up on everything. And, and, and Frodo is just getting all messed up with, uh, with, uh, with the ring. And, and we get this speech by Sam. Uh, and, it's, uh, and it's so beautiful. It is, it is a shocking love. I'm going to read that right now. At one point, he says, uh, uh, so that's it. we read in the, in the books, Sam looked at Frodo unhappily, and he said, You can trust us to stick to, to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep a secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We're your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told us. We know a good deal about the ring. We're horribly afraid. But we are coming with you or following you like hounds. Man, that just like... That does something. That's, that's, that, that's so inspiring. That's so good. And, and unfortunately... That's novel in our age. We're really not good at loyalty right now in America. We haven't been for a long time, but increasingly so. We're not good at loyalty. And so Sam and his comments seem really intense. But he just sees them as something that's normal. And I could go off at length. I I won't, uh, but I will take a stab at it. I could go off at length about how our our, our present situation, our consumerism, it really, it kind of numbs us, subtly numbs us to this idea of loyalty. We see like the latest fashion we want to go for, the current or the next fashion that comes out, uh, our seasonal trend. Uh, The new movies are... Are awesome new cars, new new um, uh, new technology. There's so many things that we're really pushing for this newness, and we think that it's under the guise of progress, under the guise of of, of, of goodness. We, we we oftentimes don't realize that subtly we're being trained to be disloyal to things that could have actually been really good in our lives. My my father-in-law has a calculator that is like. It's older than me. It's insane. Like, it's like it's made out of stones. No, it's not. But it's, it's, uh, it, it's this calculator. I'm like, why don't you just get a new calculator? He's like, because this thing is trusty and true, and I've had it my whole career, and we just go to this thing. I know how this thing works. We don't see that. It like, seems odd. I'm like, okay, come on, old man. Let's, let's get something new. But he's got something this loyalty to this calculator that I have never had with a lot of my stuff. I mean, the phone that's in my, in my pocket right now, that's probably going to be gone. I won't even think about it in two years. We have this weird sense of disloyalty that we don't, we, we, and, and it's at this level that we just kind of are desensitized to any moral quality. Now, if it's a phone or a calculator or whatever it is, that doesn't matter. But what happens is when we go through this, this life and we, and we have all of these subtle desensitizing to disloyalty, we're at a point in history, and I think we have been for a long time, where that blends down to everything. And when it hits our relationships, as it has often, we, we, we come to this place where, where we don't have loyalty to our friends. We don't have loyalty to families. We, we move far away from our, our, our in-laws on purpose, so we don't have to have that. We... we um, we, 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 we shy away from, from marriage because we're not quite sure how the loyalty and the love works there. Or if we're in it, we have these outs 
uh, that, are, that are there. And we don't sense the moral weight to that, that we need to be a people of loyalty. Now, there are many circumstances that, that, you need to, that, that, that don't drive towards loyalty. There are certain bad situations. There are certain things that, that you need um, to break from. But as a people, we need to hear what love is. We need to be a people of love. Uh, we, we read so many times in the Bible, uh, John writes at length about this, about if we are people who love God, then we are people who love each other, and these are inseparable. If we are going to be a people who beautifully proclaims the name of Christ and his love in the world, we need to know how to love. We need to love, learn how to love rightly. We need to learn how to love naturally. We need to learn how to love loyally. And to do that, we need to learn what love really is. Now, the book of Ruth does that fantastically well. One of the many themes it develops is the biblical idea of chesed. I'm going to say that word funny. It's a fun one to try out, have your kids try it at the, at the dinner table. Chesed. you got to get really in there. So if you have food, like it's flying out of your mouth. Chesed. Uh, I'll just say chesed so I don't sound super weird all the time. Um, but that, that word is so rich. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's often translated in, in Bibles as uh, steadfast love, loyal love. Um, loving kindness is another one. One, uh, one. one contemporary author, I love how he defines it. He says, chesed is love without an exit strategy. You're just all in and there's no exit. Uh, he also calls it stubborn love because chesed never says quit. That's what we get with Sam. And that's what we get with Ruth. What I love about the account of Ruth is that, is that it, 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 it tells us beautifully, powerfully about Hesed, extended to people and extended by people. But it doesn't just define it for us. It's not like we open up and it says, in the days of the judges, here's what Hesed is, here's the definition, and here are the implications for your life. But masterfully, beautifully weaves this idea of Hesed into a story. It gives us characters that do it well, that don't do it so well, that do it well but kind of don't show it so well, that understand it or question it. And we're invited not to a definition of said and then marching orders. We're invited to experience this. We're invited into this story to, to relate to these characters. We're invited to, to consider it. Slow down. It's super short, uh, a short book. We're invited to slow it down. And sit with the people in their lament. Sit with the people in their joy. Sit with the people in their awkward situations. And really understand what the hesed love of God is. My hope is that in the days to come, people would experience the hesed love of God in and through our church family. I mean, that is, that is just my, oh, I would love that day. When, when someone comes to me and they say, you know what? There's something that happens here at this church. There's something that happens with these people. And I don't know what it is. And I can finally, and they can describe all these things about it, which we're going to be talking about for six weeks. And they can say, what is that? And I can say, oh, it's because we really believe in the Hesed love of God. We don't need to write it on our wall and tell people that we believe it. We want people to feel it. And that's what's going to happen in the book of Ruth. And that's my prayer for all of us, is that we can feel at some point this Hesed love of God so that we might make Hesed love of God felt in our communities, felt in our homes, and felt in our church. All right, that's my setup. I want to get to what's actually really good about this, and it is the very words of God. So I will ask you to stand one more time out of reverence as we read uh, just the beginning verses here. Ruth 1, uh, verses 1 through 6 is where I'll go, and then we'll kind of work our way through this. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the, names, uh, the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then they arose with her daughter. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, uh, that in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We start the book in a horrible place. Uh, we start the book in, in, in just an incredible amount of hunger and famine and need and hopelessness. And there's a purpose to this. We're going to see this turn on its head throughout the book because of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, what I want to rise as we look at this text here today, uh, the situation, and then especially Ruth and Naomi's conversation is that we are to love loyally because we are loyally loved by God. We are to love loyally because we are loyally loved by God. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. I'm just going to make it really small and catchy. Be uncomfortably clingy is what it's telling us. Uh, uh, So we need to cling to one another even when it's uncomfortable. Be uncomfortably clingy. In these first verses, we're going to find that Ruth shows us this. And we're going to find that Ruth is one of the ways in which God uses unexpected heroes. Now, in in a literarily speaking, a protagonist is the person that the plot follows. That's kind of Naomi. You could argue that it's Ruth. But I I think for sure, the hero of this story, the one who undergoes tests uh, to their character and comes out the other side virtuous, she is the hero. Ruth is our unexpected hero. And what we learn from her is that God uses unexpected heroes to display his steadfast love in the world. So we start here with these first first words. In the days when the judges ruled, we have to set this up with our time and our place so we understand what's going on in Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. Now the time of the judges was marked with utter rejection of Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Israelites. When we look back one book, the book of Judges, that's what, it, that's what precedes the book of Ruth, we, uh, we see and we read that, uh, that through a series of cycles, things went from bad to worse. And what the refrain is, is that everyone did what was right in their own, was right in their own eyes. There was no king ruling at the time of the Judges. It was tumultuous. People's hearts are what drove them. And if you want to read something that is not fit for a Christian movie, just read the book of Judges. It is awful. It is an awful depiction of what happens when we let our hearts reign the day. And we don't, and we don't receive God as king. Which is ironic because then we turn over to the book of Ruth and we see that there was no king in the days of the Judges and everyone did as he pleased. But then there was a man and his name was literally, my God is king. There was no king in the time of the judges. But then there's this man named Elimelech. My God is king. And he's there telling us with his name, the Hebrew ear hears Elimelech, 
declaring, we know who the king is. He's here. And what happens is it's so bad that even the guy who's reminding us God's king is getting out of there. He's going to Moab. So now we move towards Moab. What's in Moab? I want to hit Moab a lot. We're going to look at Bethlehem and the famine that's there next week as part of Naomi's lament. I really want to focus on Moab, the Moabites, and Ruth in particular. I think if we look at her today and we set this foundation of loyal love, sitting on that idea of God's loyal love as we see it through Ruth, we can go back. We're going to read this text again next week. Um, and we're going to look at Naomi. We can sit more confidently, more, more restfully, more, more, uh, more deeply, more realistically in her lament, knowing from the example of Ruth that God's loyal love is there. So we're going to look at the Moabites now. We'll come back to this idea of famine next week. So we move towards the Moabites. Who are the Moabites? He says, it says, uh, there was a man of Bethlehem and Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, and in a fantastic book called A Loving Life by Paul Miller, he, he, he goes through the book of Ruth, and it's just it's beautiful. A Loving Life by Paul Miller. Get it, read it, love it. He explains that the Moabites, uh, he explains them in like just common, relatable language. I, I love his description of it. He says, the Moabites uh, were the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. He says, they were the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So the people of Abraham, our love and life, Lot comes along, gets together with his daughter, and now we have the Moabites. That's why the name is uh, Moab. Uh, the Hebrew ear hears the word Mo, which means who, and the word Ab, which is father. And literally, they are living in a country that is named, who's your daddy? It's there to mock them forever, because that's what we should hear. Where did they come from? Oh, yeah, they have a horrible past. This is what the Israelites would say over and over again. Oh, yeah, you're going over there to the Moabites. We know their history. But it's not just in their origin that's rough. The Moabites had, had a history with the Israelites that gets worse. As Miller puts it, he says, bad blood between the cousins got worse. In Numbers 22, we read that as Joshua was coming over, that, that, that the, uh, the people of Israel, they camp in the land of the, of the Moabites. And then in, in Numbers 25, we read that the Moabite women came and seduced the men and not only seduced them in, in certain ways, but also seduced them into idolatry of their gods. So they started rough. They did some pretty rough things. They have a rough relationship. The fact that a guy named my God is king is going to Moab. It means that we should read this and, and open up the book of Ruth and say things are not good. Things are not going well right now. This needs straightened out. And historically speaking, in Ruth, things are just getting going. The time of the judges was tumultuous for Israel, but that was also tumultuous all over the ancient Near East at that time. There was no power reigning then. As we get toward through the kings and into the exile, Isaiah 25 even points out that things did not clear up during the kingship. Isaiah 25, we read Isaiah's prophecy. He says, one day Yahweh will crush Moab in a pile of manure. You can read that. It's right there. This is one that I always say, like, we, we always pick and choose those words that we want, like those verses we want to put on our coffee cups in our, in our, in our living rooms. This is the verse for the man cave. This is, a, this, is, this is so awesome. One day Yahweh will crush Moab in a pile of manure. That's just, that's rich, guys. That's, there's hatred. 
If you're not getting it, there is a ton of hatred between these two people. The Jews and the Moabites do not like each other. They hate each other. With so much hatred, it seems pretty striking that our Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, is what the Jews call their scripture. That in the middle of the Jewish scripture, we now have a book named after a Moabite widow. That is unexpected. That is shocking. God uses unexpected people to display his chesed love to us and in this world. We should listen up to this Moabite widow. She has some things to show us. She has some things to teach us. She has some things that we should incorporate into our lives. God is in the habit of using unexpected people. So I have hope he can use you. And no matter how unqualified you think you are, know that even, even the more unqualified you think you are, the more unexpected it will be when he can and, use, and does use you. And in his unexpected ways, he will use those who you don't even expect he will use. So... Let's look alive. Let's view each other through the said love of God. Let's view each other to understand that God can and does use unexpected heroes. Now I want to focus the majority of our time here on how he does that. Verses 6 through 18, we're going to see that God calls us to an undying love. Verse 6 and 7, you can read along. Then she arose, Naomi rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. They rose to return to Bethlehem. And maybe, you've, uh, maybe there's, there's a chance if we read beyond what the text says. It doesn't give us much here, and that's some of the beauty. If we read beyond that and kind of think about what's going on, maybe... You know, Malon, Kilion, uh, Orpah, Ruth, they went back and saw like the Ephrathite family at some big family reunion or something. Like they went back to Bethlehem and, uh, you know, sometime in the 10 years of marriage. It feels like this is a really fast marriage, like they get married and died, but there's 10 years there. So in 10 years, they may have gone back. But we read in verse 7 that, that Naomi had just heard that the famine lifted. So they, they probably haven't gone back. They probably haven't ever been to, uh, uh, to Judah. So Ruth is kind of aware of this. Ruth is returning. That's what it says. She arose with her daughters to return. Ruth is going back home. But, but Orpah and, and Ruth, they're not. Like, they're going to something new. They're going to a land where they will be foreigners. Naomi gets this. She's not just a bitter woman trying to shrug some responsibility here. She understands that it's going to get even more difficult for these two ladies. She knows this. She pauses, and what she's going to do is she's going to give them three rounds, three off-ramps, three persuasive speeches to convince them to stay at home, to unhitch from her terrible fate. So here's round one. Verse 8 and 9. But Naomi said to her, two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Return to your mother's house. Now, Naomi is trying to convince uh, the, the ladies to remain in Moab for, for Orpah and Ruth's sake, not for her own sake. Naomi is doing this with good intent. She's not trying to drop excess relationship, excess responsibility. She's trying to be loving. She's trying to show a Hasid love to Orpah and Ruth. She's trying to help them out. But we're going to find she's going to get out Hasided uh, here by Ruth pretty badly. I want us to understand this because we don't, want to, we don't want to say Naomi's bad. I want to focus here now on how Ruth may receive this. I want, to, I, want, I want to see that Ruth is going through maybe a situation, maybe a dialogue that's in our head oftentimes when things get rough in relationship. And Ruth may be tempted to think certain things. So right here, go back to your mother's house. A temptation that may rise in Ruth's mind is, is this idea, this release of responsibility. Maybe, maybe we've heard it more uh, today uh, by our friends, by our family, by someone who's counseling us that says, well, you tried, as though our effort in relationship is, is some above and beyond act of virtue that releases us from the judgment of turning on our word. Yeah, how many times we, oh, this is tough, we don't know, just bail. That's what Ruth is, or Naomi's kind of saying. She's saying, go back, go back, no judgments. You can just go back, have the life you were meant to live, just go. Ruth could be tempted to say, yeah, I can. This is great. I've done my work. I just tried. But there's something else she says in here as well. Verse 9, she says, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of your husband. She says, this is the grass is greener argument. She says, go. That, you have hope over there. Like you still have this, this, this beauty that's happening uh, and, and possible. You're young. When we're talking about chesed love, Ruth gets it. She understands that effort is understood. Effort will come with love. It's, it's implied. If, if, if our love is only based on a feeling, then, then effort, I don't, we don't even think about that. And when times get tough, obviously it doesn't feel good, so we can go, right? But the chesed love of God that we see to Ruth, to Naomi, through Ruth, it points out that if you're feeling trapped, it could be because you are engaged in chesed love. If you just got to discipline your kid one more time patiently, and it's rough, you might be in that act of chesed love. If you got to stick it out through this financial downturn, if you got to stick it out through this, through this situation in your marriage, through this stressful relationship with your family, you might be engaged in said love. So don't write it off because it might feel bad. It probably will feel bad. I think if Ruth and Naomi were to speak right now, they're going to say, uh-huh, yeah, it's going to feel bad. But there is a deep commitment that happens here. Release of responsibility. Your effort is not something you can throw away so quickly. Verse 10. Orpah and Ruth, they get it. They say, no, we're going with you. We know the grass is greener in Moab. We know we have no idea of what life is going to be like as the filthy, widowed, hillbilly cousins in Judah. Maybe they read some Tolkien and they're saying, we're terribly, or we're horribly afraid. We're coming after you. Or we'll follow you like hounds. We are with you, Naomi. 
This, brothers and sisters, is loyal love. This is God's said love on display. But we get more. Round two, verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. I should say, uh, if I should say I have hope, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Turn back, my daughters. There's no hope for a future with me. Now to really feel the weight of what she's saying, we go back to verse 8. In the book of Ruth, the word has said is stated three times. And in, in verse 8, it, it, it appears in the ESV, which I think is the translation I give you, it's unfortunately translated as to deal kindly with. I feel like that's so soft and vanilla to what, to what, what the actual has said love of God is. So I'll read it with that. May the Lord, she says, may the Lord has said you as you have chesedded the dead and me. May he do something to you that you have done to me. So in verse 11, Naomi's saying, you still have a chance to experience the physical blessing of receiving and extending God's chesed love. You still have a chance, but you do not have that chance with me. While her first argument is the grass is greener on that side, her argument now has turned to a very bitter argument. The fields of opportunity are dead with me. Do not come here. This is a dead end. You will die an unknowable, unknown, shameful death. And this is all because God is against me. So turn back. There's no hope for a future with me. That's weighty. We should feel the weight of her lament. I think maybe... For some of you, this may have popped. You think like Naomi right now. God's hand is against me. That's a weight. Maybe you're like Ruth, and you know someone who is in a situation like that. What do you do? Ruth, I believe, would be tempted to self-preservation. That's what Naomi's saying. Get away from me. Go away. The hand of God is against me. Do not stand in the way of his swing. He's coming for another punch. Get away from me. This ship is going down. I need to make sure to protect myself from any collateral damage of this relationship. This is just too messy, and I can't answer this text or this phone call. I can't do this because this is so time-consuming and messy, and I have no out. Here's the amazing thing Ruth does. In the first round... She says, no, we're going with you. What does Ruth say here? So good. As someone who loves to talk, this is so good. Verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept. Ruth doesn't say anything. She has no words for this lament. This is awful. She just sits with Naomi and weeps. I said love doesn't bail, doesn't seek self-preservation. 
Naomi says here, the hand of God is against me. We read then that Orpah kisses her. She throws her hands up and says, I'm out. But Ruth then takes her hands. And what, is we, what does it say at the very end of verse 14? She takes her hands and Ruth clings to Naomi. She said, the hand of God may be against you, but my hands will cling to you. This, brothers and sisters, is loyal love. This is the said love of God and display. She knows she is marching to her own personal death if she goes this way. And she says, here we go. Verse 15, round three. Naomi still doesn't get it. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Follow Orpah's example. Return to your people. Return to what you know. Now, I don't want to flatten the text here too much. I don't want to make these characters seem so much less than they are. We're tempted right now to say, oh, Orpah, you know, or, or, or Ruth's uh, appeal is go, go the way of the crowd. Go with Orpah and really emphasize the movement of Orpah. I think that makes Ruth like stupid. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we read here, and we'll read in, in, in a while, uh, coming up in a couple chapters here, that Ruth is, is used as a phrase that she's an excellent woman. She is this, this woman wisdom of Proverbs 31. Don't flatten her here at this point and say that, Ruth, that Naomi's saying, yeah, just go with her. See, that was easy. You go too. What Ruth is appealing to is not the going of Orpah. She's appealing to the feelings of Orpah. She's, she, she's con- trying to convince Ruth, like, no, no, follow your feelings. You know the people back in Moab. You have a story with the people back in Moab. You have a reputation that's not that bad in Moab. And if I can appeal to your feelings, this is going to get really bad for you. Even if we're fed, you are not going to be the greatest person over there in Bethlehem. You are a foreigner widow from Moab. So follow your heart. And your heart says, stick with the home team. Here's some phrases we might say when we are tempted this way. I wish I could go back to the way it was. It wasn't good before. But I wish I could go back to that. It's known it feels better. I'm not sure I have the energy to resolve this. Because effort isn't fun. I don't think I can love again. I just can't stand the way this person is. Well, you're seeing Ruth display has said love to a bitter, widowed mother-in-law. She understands when it's hard to deal with someone. And she gives us the most beautiful, humbling reply. She's done with it. She steps up. She steps up her game of out chesedin Naomi and gives us a beautiful text to live by. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not argue or do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she puts a curse upon herself. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. That last line there is the end of it. And we know that that's the end of it. She's taken it to that level. Verse 18, then Naomi saw that she was determined not to go. And she said, no more. She said, okay, we're there. We get it. What does Ruth say right there? 
She says, where you go and lodge, I will be there. I am going to be with you. I will be living with you, with whom you are associated. Your reputation, it will be mine, whatever it is, wherever it goes. By the God, uh, by the God whom you are identified, so I will also be. It was very common to know that each country had its own gods. And she's saying, I am physically moving now out of safety. I am fully in where I live, who I'm identified by. Yahweh is going to be my God. And I'm not sure this is a conversion point for her at this moment. She's been married to a Yahwehist family for 10 years. So it's not like this is the first time she's thinking, oh, Moab, Yahweh. I'm sure she's already got this because the next thing she says is grounded fully in the Hesed love of Yahweh. She says, where you die, I will die and I will be buried. She's not saying we're going to die in the same cemetery plot. We're not going to have this family grave. She's saying that my love and my commitment, my loyalty to you is going to go beyond your death. It's most likely that Naomi's going to die way sooner than Ruth. And she says, I will die there. I'm not going to go back on my word even when you're not there to, to, uh, to impress. I will be buried there. That's huge. She says, I will do this because my first commitment is not to you. It's to Yahweh. My, and it's because my commitment is first to Yahweh that I can love you loyally even beyond your death. Ruth's hope is in Yahweh. So the present hopelessness of their situation doesn't change her loyal love. She put her love not first in a feeling of the moment or the season. She didn't put her love first in a person who could change or get sick and be annihilated and die. She put her hope or she put her love first in the unchanging Lord Almighty. And that gave her unwavering power. Ruth is intense, but she's not the point. She's not the point of the story of Ruth. She's only our example in that she shows us uh, that she lives out of a confident uh, relationship with God who loyally loves her. Because she has found she has found that loyal love of God so also we can live like Ruth and be loyal in our commitments because of the imaginable comfort in the love of Christ. Christ is the fullness of God's said love. Christ is the better Ruth. I'm going to run through uh, just a, a quick run through of how Christ is actually better and does the same things in a better way and a fuller way than Ruth. Christ is the point of Ruth. Christ is the pattern of Ruth. Like Ruth, Christ pursues he pursues, uh, Ruth pursues Naomi, Christ pursues us, even in seemingly hopeless situations. Ephesians 2 reads, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You, you were dead, there, there, this is hopeless. But God, being rich in mercy, because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He pursues even beyond death. Like Ruth, Christ weeps with the afflicted. He could have just been up in his throne and made everything better, but we know the incarnation. We celebrate this at Christmas. We know that, that John 1 says, though he is the incarnate word of God, he is forever eternal. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
He suffered. He was tempted with us. When at the end of the book of John, uh, we see Jesus go up to his friend. And and like we will tomorrow remember at the graveside, this person, he is there at, at the tomb of Lazarus. And what does he do? He doesn't just wave the wand and make it all better. The first thing he does is he gets there and like you and I, he weeps. Jesus weeps with us who are afflicted. And like Ruth, Christ is uncomfortably clingy. Proverbs 18.24 says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Matthew 28.20 says, uh, Jesus says in his parting words, I will be with you always. The Apostle Paul asked the question in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ruth is a foreshadowing of Christ of his loyal love in thick and thin. He clings to us. He pursues us. He is with us. He weeps with us. So the quick, easy application for today, receive that love. We can never be a people who extend the love if we've not received it ourselves. Christ pursues you to repentance, not just because you're awesome or he needs you. He pursues you for the good in you. That you will repent and have faith and embrace that journey of sanctification. Christ weeps with you for the brokenness in this world. Christ clings to you even beyond the grave. So we then naturally extend his loyal love as an act of stewardship. We steward the love which we could never know without God. It's not something that we can well up within us. This kind of love does not happen unless we tapped into the love of Christ. This kind of love urges us to say, I am for you. I'm with you uh, to win the good that God has intended in you, to celebrate you publicly. I am for you. This love says, I am with you. It says, I will stick to you through thick and thin. This love says, I am here until death, no matter what, to the bitter end. In a world of increasing disloyalty, people need to hear that they are loved loyally. We need to know and feel that we are loved loyally. We need to know that because of God's has said, we can extend that has said to one another. Brothers and sisters, I invite you on this journey of, lo- of, of loyal love of God as we see it in and through God's people. Let's pray now.